basically when you go to the doctor the doctor make a diagnosis so let's say that the doctor says that uh, you have a cold and then the doctor makes a prognosis which means how fast you will recover that's strictly speaking not a prediction it's a prognosis because it has uh, let's say that it's uh, more a kind of explanation of the situation which will bring about a certain future outcome whereas the prediction is just uh, you look at the past and then you extrapolate a possible future based on past data so a prognosis is something is something more than just a prediction okay and usually a prediction is based on past data what what happened in the past projected onto the future i th i think that this is difficult to say because what is is the requirement that when do we go back to normal because i have a feeling there won't be a normal that we return to which is what we would have called normal before the um before the outbreak so but I, I reckon you know people going to restaurants people going to bars people majority of people returning to work i think that's i don't know but i can't imagine it's before the end of the year at least you know um and maybe even it's just so hard to tell because actually let's say that let's say that things clear up let's say that people are able let's say there's a vaccine so when's that going to happen let's say 12 months we get a vaccine for it then i guess that's a good start and good reliable testing is probably a good start as well but then after that there's so many people who have lost their jobs for so long there's so many people working in different ways than they were beforehand. There's so many people learning in different ways than they were beforehand. It seems um, it seems like this is a change that has going to have longer consequences than just the illness itself. But hmm. so so you mean that there will be changes that are going to be somehow yeah. permanent, and those might regard your the way in which you organize your work perhaps or also learning and teaching because this is going to be a transformative experience this is actually my prognosis for the future which is clearly not a prediction i think that it's a it's going to be it's going to be a a radical transformation i'm i i don't know what exactly is going to change i think that we will still have some kind of capitalism i think so capitalism will will still be there because there are many people claiming that this is the end, <laughs> at least of globalization as we have known it. But uh, but when it comes to education, I think that this is going to be a quake. I mean, this is going to be big, especially if we, if it will take uh, one year, one year and a half to return back to normal. I mean, to a situation in which we can uh, go to the uni meet students uh, doing our own things from the office i think that something will be permanent permanently changed or better transformed do you think it's inevitable that there's going to be a positive outcome no no absolutely not absolutely not 
because history is not deterministic. You cannot you cannot just draw a line and say this is going to be the future. There will be actually opposing forces determining what is going to be. There will be there will be conflicts. There will be conflicts. For example, in education, I think that there will be a group of people saying, "You see, technology works. We can we can do it online." And there will be a group of people saying it was a total crap. Please, let's go back to to the past. Uh, educational technology is just a scam. It's just something that doesn't work unless you put so so big effort in it. Yeah, it's. I I I think I'm an optimist because I do think that this will positively impact. It's kind of lucky that it doesn't kill. 20% of everybody, you know? So if that was the case, then maybe this wouldn't inevitably lead to positive outcomes. But I think because it's a small number of, relatively small number of people that are seriously affected, um, I don't know if that's true even, but you, like compared to let's say 20%, it's a small number, then I think it is going to have if we get through it, it is going to have a positive impact on the way that we learn and the way that we work because just the same way that a disease infects our, affects our immune system and we get stronger from it, then this might be the case. And it's kind of like a big shock to the system. You know, we, we suddenly have to start thinking about how we can more effectively teach online, how we can more effectively work online remotely. And it just seems like it, it might have needed this shock to the system to make this exponential leap in progress that, that, that's going to happen. But then maybe not. Maybe we just all go back to doing all the things we have before because we, we don't manage to do anything well. But I don't think kids are going to stop learning just because they're at home necessarily. I hope not. Well, I think that we've been thinking and talking a lot about disruption in education. And we never succeeded, actually, because we still have schools, we still have universities, we still have this traditional form of learning and teaching. But this is disruptive. I'm not so sure that this is what we really wanted, but certainly is disruptive. And therefore, we will see some uh, changes. I, I would stick to the word transformation, which goes beyond good and bad it just that we're gonna do things in a different way because we will be transformed by this uh, by this situation maybe we will have more online learning maybe people will discover that they can actually organize their activities their educational activities in a different way maybe our repertoire pedagogical repertoire will be enriched maybe we will get to know we will understand a little bit better what educational technology can actually do. Maybe this is going to be just the two of us or, 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 or a relatively small group of people. But I think that there will be a transformation which will have impact on the economy, uh, society, and of course also education. Yeah. I hope that it will not be a sort of conservative transformation because this is the danger this is the danger so that for example 
Um, many of these international, international programs will be closed down because students are no longer, they don't want to travel anymore or because the universities will cut down scholarships. This might be our case. Or there might be the case that many international programs uh, will be taught online, like, like the Master Program in Educational Technology at the University of Tartu, where I come from. Because we haven't been disrupted, by the way. We haven't been disruptive because we all, all our activities were online. Students' thesis work has been disrupted because the school system has been disrupted. The idea of a reduction in international students traveling between countries to attend university is quite sensitive in Australia, particularly at... Um, the, one, the university where I studied education, University of Queensland, and a lot of universities in Australia, a very large number of those universities have international students, particularly from China, who go to study. And it's really a cash cow for the universities to inject enormous sums of money into the university system. And I'm not going to... I don't know if you could argue that they're spending that money well. Maybe they're investing in infrastructure. Maybe there's just inflated salaries for administrative people. I'm not really sure, but I think you could argue either side of that. But if one of the outcomes is that there's not as much money anymore, I think it actually has a positive side as well as a negative side because I do think that an over-reliance on international students and removing the um, the target market of the people in your own country um, that that's a, that's a dangerous game to play in the long term because in the end universities are there to educate you know hopefully the people of it within the society that then will contribute back to that society but then if 40 percent of your cohort leaves the country or leaves the city to go elsewhere um, similar to I guess they call it the, the brain drain and and that and that's that's one of the things that happens when you have this over-reliance on international student money and it's something that's happening in Australia but then there's so many other effects of that Brisbane is a city that has huge numbers of um, international students it's really an integral part of the uh, of the economy for that city, and a lot of those international students stay, and they, they you know they make it their home as well. So it's sort of this. Um, th there's so many different ways that these these issues are going to affect different institutions and in different places. Yeah, and I think that this is an attack issue. This is a, this is an issue that educational technology should be, or people interested in educational technology should be very much interested in because uh, I think that what you're pointing to is that the business model might not be viable anymore. It's not that you close down no. universities because of course people want to get an education, a higher uh, good education. So the university might still be there but we need to revise the business model and I think the technology is part of the equation. Well, it's a lot cheaper to run a, run a course if you don't have any humans on your campus, so you don't have to need the, need the 
class sizes to run. You don't need the air conditioning to to make sure that everybody's cool in the lecture theatres. There's a lot of ways you can save money. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that, for example, here in Tartu, the university has international master programs. All bachelor, all bachelor programs are in Estonia, so you don't get foreigners. <laughs> Because they they should actually speak the language, which is pretty hard and uh, not probably the best thing to 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 learn. Because it's a it's a small country; it's spoken by roughly one million of people. But the master programs, the majority of the master programs are actually in English. They are international, and the same goes for the PhD studies. So so I would expect academics to try to come up with a, a different model. Because the danger, the threat comes from the private sectors, from giants such as you know Google, uh, Apple, Microsoft, that they can just uh, step in and say, well, we provide some kind of uh, higher education that can be certified, especially in certain areas that are in great demand. I'm talking about IT, for example. Maybe for doctors, things are different. Because doctors, I mean, medical education is something that is still very much related to the rooted in the nation because you have to communicate with your fellow citizens. But when it comes to certain critical areas, such as IT, I think that those giants may, may easily step in and just, uh, and just conquer the market. And it shouldn't be the same thing as a university. It can be some kind of upgraded uh, kind of MOOC. Uh, it can be it can be it can be done in many different ways. So, for example, Google so far has provided us with a rather decent platform, which is a Google Classroom. It's built on traditional schooling, so nothing innovative there, but the tools are there. But the tools are there. So it can be that they may come up with something interesting for higher education, especially for certain sectors, for certain areas. So I think that it's going to be a, a quite interesting thing to, to, to see, especially if public, universe, public and private universities, universities will not understand that this must be changed. They have to change their business model that have been heavily relying on Chinese students, essentially. Because mm. I actually remember, I was in January 2019, I went to England, and I happened to be at the University of Huddersfield, um, a relatively young university. Uh, I was there for a workshop, and it was mind-blowing to see only Asian students around me. And then I asked, what's, what's the matter? I mean, is there a Chinese-Asian uh, Asian department here or, or, or what? And then I was explained that, no, these are our students. So most of the students were actually from Asian countries. So I'm talking about chi uh, China, uh, China, South Korea, Japan, those, those places. And, and, uh, and you're right when you said that, that this is uh, the cash cow, I mean... But I'm, I, I don't think that this is going to be the same after this pandem uh, pandemic. I think that this is going to be the major change, which, which will then trigger further changes down the line. 
even more drastic structural changes. Because, you know, if you have to change your business model, I mean, many other things will change. I wonder if it's... Um, so do you, Okay, so do you really think that this, the result of this coronavirus, that there will definitely be a change, largely due to the reluctance of international students to travel? Or do you think it is likely going to change? Or like how what how confident are you or not so confident that this will actually happen? Because the the desire and the need for international education, high quality, rigorous education, really in the in the instructional language of English, is still going to be desired after this fact. So I wonder even if this is going to be a catalyst for change, or even even this bigger um, shakeup will still not be enough to get. Um, to reduce the number of, let's say, for example, Chinese international students going to English-speaking universities? Well, I actually don't know. I actually don't know. Uh, so that's why I was saying that mine is just a yeah. prognosis. So an assessment of the current situation and then some... some. Um, I mean, I think... I mean, I think that the system has been disrupted. I think that even when all prohibitions and restrictions will, will be lifted up, people will not willing to travel. At least for six months, up to a year, up to a year. So the system will be disrupted. And it might be that we will come up with other solutions, which might turn out to be long-term solutions. So what, what may work in the short term might be the strategy of tomorrow this is of course just an option this is just an option because you may also make the argument that the system will be resilient enough to bounce back to the same thing that we used to have let's say after a period of accommodation and assimilation of different uh, different uh, different issues different questions that of course we will raise that people will raise i think one of which is traveling because the thing is that, and I can actually see as a program director, as a person who is dealing now with the, uh, with the uh, admission of new students, basically you have to start at least six months before you actually start your courses. So we're going to have our interview, our admission interviews next week. And the program will start at the end of August. So we are six months ahead so you have to plan those things. And when the system gets disrupted now, it's going to be disrupted uh, for about six, from six to, to nine months at least. Besides, I don't even know what is going to happen in September or whether or not the students will come to Tartu. Now, of course, our program is online or partly online. So students need to be here only for two weeks in August. So we are kind of robust. We're not so exposed uh, to, to this disruption because we have already made a step forward. So we moved online. But having said that, imagine, I mean, I imagine a master program that we have here that is in uh, Russian uh, European studies. This is something appealing to post-Soviet countries as well as Western European countries. They get 20 students per year. Are they going to come here in September or not? 
Will they be allowed to come here? Will they be willing to come here? When perhaps the, their parents have problem at home? Even when we put them in, in a quarantine before they come to Estonia, for example, or, or to the Netherlands. I mean, will they be willing to do that? Will they be willing to risk their life? Spending two weeks, three weeks uh, at the airport or God knows where. You also have to think that you have to plan this. Now, what happens if this is not going to be the case? That there will be many master programs that won't have any student because of that. What are you going to do? Even the f- There is money involved. Even the fact that it might be the case that these people were considering taking a year off from their profession to study a master's or it was being funded by their workplace, for example, and suddenly that money's yeah. dried up. Suddenly they're less that they want that security. There's no money, yes. You know, they've got their, they've got yeah. a full time contract. They might not be exactly where they want to be in their career and that's why they want to do a master's program so they can upskill and sort of move on to the next stage. But I imagine a lot of those people aren't going to be taking those decisions and saying, yeah, now's a good time to take a risk. Now's a good time to go down to one salary in, in, in our relationship, for example. Yeah, I, I think that I think that this is a crucial issue. Are they be willing to are they willing to uh, be willing to take such a risk which involves moving to another country which means many things that at the moment people may not want to do but I have no data because to, I, I haven't spoken with, the, with my colleagues from, from other master programs so I don't know how things are going for them How is your curriculum looking different then? Have you even considered a a change of curriculum that you'll be covering in the master's program for next year? Maybe not formally, but have you toyed with ideas that directly deal with this type of um, issue? Uh, No, not at the curriculum level. I think that we must change something at the course level. And this is what I'm going to do for my courses because there's so much to learn from the current situation. There are also educational technologies that are going to be more relevant than others. Um, I expect certain areas of educational technology to be very important, for example, online learning, and uh, and more practical live video making, Mm. to put it very simple. Simply, I think I think that we need to to have something specific on that. You know how to conduct a webinar, how to even even how to design an online course. What about as which, which what about as a program director? Are you considering, you know, professional development for your for your teachers who are who are teaching in your? Well, well, well. This is a very interesting question because I actually thought that this period is for me the best. Uh, chance for developing professionally so it's 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 a it's a real authentic situation in which i can learn a lot about my own work it's what we're doing now so i would say that that's what we're doing right now i guess well yes exactly exactly i think that that's why it's very important to take some time off from your administrative duties and try to understand what it's going on now and uh, and and also talk to people try to try to understand how people are coping with the present situation 
and then to have conversations like this one because I think that it's very important. So my professional development is precisely this, which is actually also my research interest because you know I'm interested in research and educational technology. So the two things go hand in hand. For my colleagues, I don't know because this is a problem. Uh, I'm I'm a kind of liberal um, program director, so I don't want to push people. But I will prohibit my colleagues to have. Uh, three-hour webinars, that's for sure. No way that you're going to have three-hour webinars. You shouldn't be having three-hour lectures either, surely. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, in a lecture, I mean, you can have group work, you can have something, but in a webinar, you're just standing in front of a screen. I mean, I'm standing in front of three screens at the moment. <laughs> But, uh, well, okay. Let, I've been thinking about this because I'm not sure if there's a there's a technology that allows, let's say, simpler software that allows a lecturer to have their webinar and then automatically break groups up into groups of three. Let's say a, a class of thirty. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible in Zoom. It's called uh, breakout rooms. There you go. So in that case, a three-hour lecture, just if it's possible in a in a um, in a brick-and-mortar university, then having those same activities and delivering them online, I, I feel it's uh, it's also valid and even engaging. Heavens forbid, it could also be engaging. But there is an issue here, and I think that it's the biggest issue at the moment, in my opinion, which is about screen time and the kind of interaction that we have with screens. Because nowadays, I mean, not nowadays, at this very moment, everything is mediated by, by a screen. Sometimes two screens, sometimes three screens, as I said before. I don't think that it's the same thing. I think that we need to understand way more what it means to sit in front of a screen. I mean, I know that there are some critical issues concerning screen time for children. But I would say that uh, at the moment, we don't even know theories or, or theoretical frameworks that would help us understand what the problems could be, even at theoretical level, not talking about the practical level. So we, we, we actually think that, okay, we have a screen, huh? I have you here on my screen. It's basically pretty much the same thing as having you in front of me in the same room. Obviously, it's not the same. There is a screen that process, that, that, that actually mediates the relation at, at, at very different levels, at very different levels. The perceptual level, the visual level, uh, the, 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 the physical level, the psychological level, the interactive level. So interaction could be different. Our perception, visual perception might be working differently. And at the moment, we basically don't have, I mean, we have some pieces of theory. I would say, especially coming from ecological psychology, that could help us somehow. We can also use phenomenology to investigate the kind of experience that we have when we're sitting in front of a screener. And then there are also neurological studies, uh, developmental studies for children uh, that, 
that that would tell us that this is not very good for the child's brain uh, because the kind of stimuli uh, that the child is uh, is 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 affected by and uh, and that the child has to process are entirely different looking at the screen is not like looking through a window for example there is a frame but it's totally different i suspect that we don't use our visual field because we're just looking at the particular area of our visual field which is usually the one that is uh enframed uh by by the screen i only have questions for this i'm 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 these are just uh, comments. I think I think the if you set up a from a practical point of view, if you set up a you, you start with a lecture, you send out groups of students to do breakout work in their little pods. The screen might be mediating the communication between the students within that pod, but the work itself doesn't have to be happening on the screen. Exactly. It it would be happening in the real environment. Maybe they're taking notes. Maybe they're brainstorming. Maybe they're putting together some mind map of some description in order to summarize a topic that happened in the first lecture. I think, I mean, when people are in lecture theaters and they're doing group work anyway, they've also got a screen in front of them. And often the work is done on a screen as well. So I do understand that it's probably something we should be conscious of the fact that you don't just because you're breaking up into small groups in a, in a zoom small group environment, we still need to be aware that there's still a, still a screen. It's not the same as having people talking in real life. And, and I would say that this is exactly what educational technology is all about. Precisely this. If we are aware that there are limitations on uh, screen time, that it may be detrimental that we organize our teaching and learning with three hours yeah. of, of, of screen, <laughs> of screening something, you know, then of course we will organize and reorganize our teaching practice in a different way. Especially, as you said, people could actually do something in their physical environment and then they can share. The other thing is that we may actually go back to to the radio. <laughs> I mean, uh, to the to the to the times where where we were actually listening to something or somebody. So so this is actually something that I've been thinking. Although I've been always a kind of uh, Nazi when it comes to uh, you know the webcam should be on. Uh, I could I should uh, I I I actually want to see my students. I want my students to see me. But perhaps we should revise that. We should perhaps rely way more on listening, listening to each other. As if we are kind of, uh, you know, pretty much the thing that we were used to do on the phone. You know, we had phone calls. We had phone calls and that's it. Of course, there is some kind of uh, impoverishment of... Of, 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 of the amount of information that we are able to communicate beyond words. We don't have uh, non-verbal cues, of course, because if we're just speaking on the phone, this is, not, this is not the case. But at least the audio is better, because if we now switch off our webcams, the audio will still be okay, at least better than on the phone. Maybe this is also an option. 
which we should discover and explore alongside with students. So, and this is going to be another important transformation, or, or, or I hope that this is going to be the case, that we, we will consider students as our collaborators, not as recipients of instructions, things to do, things to accomplish, but that the students themselves will collaborate with us for finding ways to make this viable, at least uh, as long as the present situation will continue a situation in which we can we cannot physically meet so students could actually have a huge impact on this which also means that we should start doing a bit of co-creation just to pull off a label perhaps we should start thinking that students are our our collaborators and we are their collaborators yeah and that obviously depends on the context of of who you're students are and, and what you're learning because I know if you want to use that approach for me as a learner that would be fine but then there's a lot of people out there who also just give me the content let me know what I need to learn and get me through this course stop bothering me I'm thinking back to some of the classes that we that we took that I took of yours where the co-creation was encouraged and not everybody appreciates that sort of style the same way you or I might as a learner. Uh, but I guess that's also part of the co-creation process. Well, this is part of a co-creation process, which is also part of co-cultural creation. So it's uh, we're trying to develop practices which are rooted in, 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 in cultures, essentially. Uh, the, I'm tempted to say that also for students, this is going to be a big change. And maybe we don't need to get all the students who want to study. Maybe we need to focus on those who are authentically interested in studying and, and those who are not just interested in getting a certificate or a piece of paper. But the, the problem is the incentive structure at the moment is set up for that piece of paper. It's not set up for the intrinsic motivation to learn more about the application of educational technology in the classroom, for example. It's actually educational technology is probably one of the areas where there is not an incentive structure that is so heavily guided towards get the piece of paper and get out. I don't know anybody who's asking for this degree in educational technology. Maybe there is more now than a few years ago, but... I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, over the past three years, I've seen people truly interested in educational technology, at least the majority of them, let's say 80%. 80% were interested, truly authentically interested in developing this uh, sort of skill complex skill let's put it this way so i agree with you and this and this is i mean we go back to what kind of future we 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 imagine for higher education because imagine that all these giants uh, big big ad tech companies uh, like google apple microsoft will step up and will basically become the major competitor competitors for all other universities that will provide certificates so perhaps we should stop providing certificates 
and, uh, and giving people learning transformative experiences, which is what I think that our EdTech students are after. And I think that you were after this. You, were, you, you wanted to have a transformative experience in this field, which combines technology and education. And then you decided to, to, <laughs> to do a PhD, but I think that this was somehow coherent with, your, with, your, uh, with this ideal. I mean, I don't know if you would phrase it this way, if you would articulate it this way, but I think that for you it was a kind of transform, or, or you were looking for a transformative experience. I mean, you moved from China to the Netherlands I, because you were interested. I, I don't think, actually, I don't think it was one or the other. I really wanted that. I, I think having the certificate itself was an important reason for me to join the EdTech program. This, without this certificate, I would have not have, I likely would not have put in the energy and effort in, in, the, in, in, in the coursework and things that I did. However, the certificate alone is also, I had a friend who, who, who was doing an EdTech master's program purely online at the same time. And his experience compared to mine was vastly different. And it was largely due to the group of people and, and the program itself, the fact that we met each other in person and there was this sense of community that we were working to, on this thing together. And there was really this co-creation co and, and and that contributed to the enjoyment and also the challenge of, of the of the program. But I, I'm not going to pretend that the fact that there was a certificate involved um, wasn't a contributing factor. I don't think I think you need to have both. The problem is when you get a certificate and it's not worth anything. People that they have they become so diluted of value due to practices of let's say maybe dumbing down the 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 requirement in order to receive the certificate or things like this this is also a problem but you need a way to basically distinguish between the people who have done work up to a certain standard and those who haven't at the moment, the way yep. universities do it is by providing this archaic idea that here's this piece of paper to say, yes, you've done it. Maybe this is another thing that we should, uh, we should discuss, what kind of piece of paper we should provide yeah. to people. Because, you know, you can also, I mean, this, this experience that you had uh, is part of your portfolio, for example. So... Anyway, it would be part of your portfolio. It would be part of the things that you can uh, uh, show to people. You know, there is also your. I mean, what's insane is primary schools are adopting this type of certificate behavior, and I think in some ways you can see it as a good thing. Okay, so they've got this portfolio of learning, and it really shows the students progress from year one when they're doing, you know, investigations of the garden and they've got photographs of bugs and things. And it's this constant journey up until year six, six or year seven, whenever you graduate and then you get your certificate and depending on what class you're in or, or what country you're in, in, 
in England, it's the end of key stage two and you get the certificate to say you've finished key stage two and you have these levels and then that goes to the secondary school and the secondary school looks at these, this certificate or these levels and say, okay, you go in this class, you go in that class, you go in that class based on these, really on this certificate, you know. Obviously, the students aren't at school because they have this certificate. They're not motivated necessarily by the certificate. But there is a bit of insanity around what the certificate gives us or what is displayed think, on it. Yeah. I think that it's totally insane. It's really totally insane because it should be just a certificate. It certifies that you have done certain things. Okay, it's, it's, it's signaling that you're ready for something. But at the same time, we, we run the risk to mistake the map for the territory, as geographers would say. You know, we're talking about the territory, not about the map. It's just a, it's just a way in which you signal that, that you're ready for doing something or that you're willing to do something or that you have gone through a certain kind of experience that makes you ready or, 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 or useful or adapt, uh, apt to do something. This, but I'm afraid. I'm very much afraid that all these ad tech giants will, will that that these tech giants will step in, and then they will provide this piece of paper, and that's it. I think if they were to if they were to step in, I don't think that we should expect anything less than crap in the end. I mean, this is actually this is exactly my own argument because I had a, I had a discussion yesterday with a friend and he was actually saying precisely this. Well, we will have all these tech giants stepping in and uh, and and we weep everything out. And then I was thinking, where are they going to find good teachers? Where are they going to find the good lecturers? I mean, it's not so easy to build your social capital and intellectual capital just because you have money. I mean. Well, I think one of the arguments I've heard is what they will do is they'll take the best lecturer from from every subject, from every university, they pay them a million dollars each, and that individual lecturer will then provide a curriculum and deliver instruction for a million students, you know? I think that's, that's one of the ways I've, I've seen it spoken about before, and... I guess that's just like a MOOC, isn't it? It's it's. This is exactly. I was about to say the same. Yeah. But 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 people at universities now have exactly that experience. They finish their degree, they get their certificate, and they go into the workforce, and that's the day they start learning. When they're actually stepping inside that office, they need to figure out how to talk to the office lady, how to talk to the. Um, their colleagues, how to be able to figure out, you know, where to get the photocopier from. I mean, as a teacher, it's incredible how you finish your you, you finish your university education um, in teaching, but you realize the the part where you learn the most is actually in the practical times when you're in the classroom with the students, um, because you can't teach that any other way, really. But of course, you yeah, need we- the the psychology and yeah. and the other aspects that you learn is important and valuable. But this is also very important because then the question would be, what is the vocation of the university? I mean, should we teach skills that should, that should and can be applicable to the work context right away without any form of mediation, without any form of apprenticeship, 
I would say that the university shouldn't teach that. The university should prepare, you know, our minds for something that is messy, uh, rough, complex. So I would say this is this is another way to 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 prove that the university is still an institution that is valuable, provided that we can change it somehow. One thing, one thing though, I want to backtrack a little bit because. I'm afraid that if students see that in the end what the university is providing now in, this, in the current situation is something like a MOOC, but way worse than a MOOC, then this might be a crucial experience that might actually make people think that perhaps MOOCs are not so bad, especially in the current situation. Because let's be honest, at the moment, if I should... If I choose from this kind of, uh, um, you know, emergency uh, in which all lectures are, are doing all these webinars and stuff like that, then I would say, well, I would actually take a MOOC because at least it's something that has been designed yeah. for the context in which I'm in currently. So this is this is also the kind of danger. That's why the universities should be, you know, responsive to the present situation and 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 start to try to find ways in which higher education can be provided even even in the times of coronavirus even in the times of 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 covid-19 with this with this shit Emmanuel we at the end of our last episode we said yes. we tried to keep um keep the length of of these conversations. Under 30 minutes. Yeah. Under 30 minutes. And I think we're at 50 now. But we're, I think, 40-something. But, um, but, but yeah, but it, I think all of these things is, as a discussion topics, can go on forever. Um, yeah. And perhaps something... I mean, I would also like to explore in some, at some stage ideas which relate to this around these badges and these kind of open badges was an initiative that was used as a as a replacement of the certificates and let's say it hasn't been adopted as widely as some would have hoped and but um there's so many different there's so many different paths we can take around um this topic i'm afraid that they are begging the question but anyway so it's just a it's just a sort of replacement of something that should be just removed but anyway there's a whole but I'm also radical. There. Sorry. There's a whole nother hour conversation there. Then, by the sounds of it, yeah, You've exactly, got ideas. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yes. But we can wrap up here. We can wrap up, wrap up here, and see and see and see what to do for the next time. I think that we should come back to the role of educational technology in higher education, which is, I think, I mean, which is which is one of my main interests. You're an expert, honest. aren't you? No, I'm not an expert. I'm a practitioner, which means that perhaps I'm an expert, but a very practical. If you're not an expert, then we've got no chance. I don't know, but anyway, uh, I think that we should uh, we should continue this conversation, and and the interesting thing would be that, uh, I mean, in our own master program, we should come up with something different because we're not going to meet our students in August. I mean, I'm quite sure that this is not going to materialize. No, so September. We need no way. Well, September of our, yeah, well, September, end of September, uh, end of August. So we need to find something different, 
and uh, and so and maybe we can use this podcast to 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 brainstorm or to partly brainstorm about this and i can use you sounds good as a co-creator okay thank you very much and uh yeah see you the next time yeah the third episode yeah when are we going to publish the first one i don't know i don't know maybe yes who knows but this time we're gonna okay we can stop here yeah 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 uh, I, let me, yes i will stop stop i will okay so i stop